Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 31, and verse 25. Let's see if we can cover verses 25 through 36 today. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. Can you raise your hand if you've ever had a mother? I think mothers are pretty important to the furthering of humanity. And of course, uh, yesterday, as Ed mentioned in the announcements, we had our uh, ceremonies honoring our four high school graduates and then also honoring another graduate whose name is Gabriel Morris, who received his Master's of Divinity degree. And as we went through the birthdays, there's one birthday we haven't mentioned yet, and that's the birthday of Israel. Today is May the 14th, 2023. May the 14th, 1948 is when the modern state of Israel declared her independence and was immediately attacked on all sides. And everybody thought the... Israel experiment would disappear. And here we are 75 years later. Not only does Israel exist, but she actually has more territory than what she originally had. Must be a work of the Holy Spirit. What do you think? We uh, have a message today entitled God's Opportunity. If you're struggling with some sort of deficit in your life or lack in your life or problem in your life, take heart. That's the perfect opportunity for God to work. God is going to work magnificently in Jacob's life, beginning in verse 37. But before we can get to verse 37, we have to see the nature of the problem. God, of course, in the book of Genesis is creating a nation, the nation of Israel, through the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are in the Jacob historical account, and this section has two parts. Jacob's contract, which is what we're going to look at today. And then, Lord willing, next week, Jacob's enrichment. Here's our outline for Jacob's uh, contract. That looks like a lot of stuff, doesn't it? Let's see if we can get through some of this today. First of all, we have Jacob's request. And notice, if you will, Genesis chapter 30, verse 25. Now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph. So that's sort of a review of everything that has happened prior to this point in Genesis 29 and in Genesis 30. Jacob's dozen have been born. Through Leah would come Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, uh, and also Issachar and Zebulun. Um, Through Zilpah would come Gad and Asher. Through Rachel would come Joseph, and then later Benjamin. And through Bilhah would come Dan and Naphtali. At this point, Jacob has 11 sons and one daughter, And through those 11 sons, and there's going to be a 12th one added in Genesis 35, is coming the foundation of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. 
a messy situation indeed, as we have studied, a sticky situation indeed, a problematic situation indeed, not the best behavior going on here necessarily, but despite man's bad behavior, God is still in control. Amen? And he is using all of this to raise up a nation. It's so relieving to know that even in the midst of our bad choices and the bad choices of other people that we're victimized by many times, God can and still does work through those circumstances. So after sort of a summary of the time period, we have Jacob's request. It says that when Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives, Leah and Rachel, in other words, and my children that we just reviewed, for whom I have served you and let me depart. It's kind of interesting here that Jacob, who is, when all of these things happen, he's in a place called Haran. That's that circle up north. That circle in the east is called Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where Abraham and his household came from. And then as you go into the west circle there by the Mediterranean, you see the land of Israel, which was then the land of Canaan. It hadn't been named yet the land of Israel. And Jacob was raised and reared in Canaan. And he went up north to Haran where these events have happened to him. He gets himself two wives, and we're not saying that's the goal of life, to get two wives. Um, You'd be in the wrong religion if you want to do that. I could recommend some others, but not Christianity necessarily. But uh, through, through circumstances, he's deceived into marrying one, and then he finally gets married to the one he had his heart on, Rachel. And so you have Leah and Rachel together. And he wants to take these wives and the families and the children through which they came and take them back from Haran in the north back to Canaan, which Jacob here calls my own land. In fact, he says it twice here. My own country, my own land. Make no mistake about it that that land in the Middle East, which is one of the most uh, disputed territories in all of the world, belongs to the people of Israel. We don't like to use the term Palestine because the Bible knows no such term. That land in that part of the world in the Middle East is called the land of Israel. It is part of a covenant that God gave to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible simply states that as a fact. That's why the prophet Ezekiel would have been a lousy political commentator for CNN. Because Ezekiel made a prediction that is largely being fulfilled in our day. Ezekiel said, for I will take you, that's Israel, from the nation's where they had been scattered, they've been in worldwide dispersion ever since A.D. 70. And I'm going to gather you from all the lands in your worldwide dispersion, and I will bring you into your own land. 
The reason Ezekiel wouldn't have done well as a political commentator for CNN is when you watch CNN or MSNBC or any of these sort of liberal cable outlets, they give you the impression that Israel is living in someone else's land. Israel stole the land from somebody else. And yet that's not the biblical perspective. That land belongs to the Jewish people. The fact of the matter is, and I don't have the quote for you today, but I've used it many times, Mark Twain visited that part of the world in the late 1800s. He wrote about it in his book called Innocence Abroad. And he basically said there's absolutely nothing here. There's no thriving population. There's no wealth. It's just dry, barren desert. So this idea that somehow Israel came back into that land, 1948, whose birthday we're celebrating today, and displaced some sort of thriving population is simply a historical myth. That land belongs to the Jewish people by divine covenant. God has recycled them back today in our lifetime. We're watching it happen into their own land. And even as Jacob presents this request to Laban in Haran, he says, I want to go back to my own land. I want to go back to my own country. So what then is the basis of this request? You see it there at the second part of verse 26, Jacob speaking to Laban, for you yourselves, yourself, Know my service, which I have rendered to you. I've paid two bridal prices here. One for Leah, who I was deceived into marrying. And then a second one for Rachel. I've served seven years for Leah. I've served seven years for Rachel. My contract has been fulfilled. I have done my part of the bargain. Payment in full, now give me my wives and give me my family, and I want to go back from Haran to my land, the land of Israel. Paid in full. And it's hard for me to leave this expression, paid in full, without contemplating what Jesus Christ did for us. In John 19, verse 30, this was Christ's final words on the cross before his death. He says, therefore, when Jesus had received sour wine, it is, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. In other words, he died. His last words that came out of his mouth, translation in English is, it is finished. It's a translation from the Greek word tetelestai, which is a term that's been found all over the Greco-Roman world by way of archaeological discovery. It was something that was um, written or, in some cases, uh, impressed upon bills that had been paid. It's an accounting term. It means paid in full. This uh, becomes very, very significant because most of the religious world today thinks, like the top slide there above. I got this from uh, Dr. Tom Stiegel, this particular chart of Duluth Bible Church. The world of religion says Jesus did 90%. And you've got to kick in the 10% for salvation. By doing what? 
You've got to pay, you've got to pray, and you've got to obey. That's how most of the world looks at supposedly what the Bible teaches, that Jesus bought lunch, but I need to leave the tip. And if I don't leave the tip, I'm not going to go into heaven. Which is a terrible place to be because, number one, that's works-oriented salvation. If you pay any percent, 10% or less. And uh, beyond that, how do you know if you've really reached 10%? How do you know if you've prayed enough, paid enough, obeyed enough? Well, you're going to supposedly appear before God at some great final judgment, and he's going to look at your life and say, ah, you're in, this person's in, this person came a little short, and so they're, they're not coming in. And if you believe the top slide there, the top square, you're going to go through your whole life with no assurance. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus did not say, paid 90%. He said, to Telestai, paid in full. And once you understand that, that moves you into the square below, which is not the world of religion. It's the world of salvation by grace. Unmerited favor coming to you as a child of God. Which means to get into heaven, you don't have to pay. You don't have to pray. And you don't have to obey. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying we shouldn't do those things? Well, you should do them, but not to get into heaven. I mean, if you're doing them to get into heaven, you miss the whole point of the Bible. You would do those things as it's reasonable. It's your reasonable sacrifice unto the Lord. It's logical, Romans 12, verse 1 says. Since Jesus did all of these things for me, and since I am totally 100% secure in the person of Jesus Christ, I should do these good works out of worship to Him, out of gratitude to Him. See, it changes your focus in, in service. Why, why serve the Lord? A lot of people are serving the Lord because they're trying to kick in that last 10%. That's not why you serve the Lord. You serve the Lord out of worship and gratitude because your account is paid in full. And what's logical for you to do is to want to serve the Lord, want to glorify the Lord all your days because you can't believe what Jesus did for you. See, I'm serving the Lord today not because I feel like, oh my goodness, my salvation is hanging in the balance. I serve the Lord today because I realize that my salvation is not hanging in the balance. My sin debt has been paid in full. I'm serving the Lord today because I'm grateful for what he's done for me. I want to I want to worship him. That's what's logical. But it's not because I think at any minute the carpet is going to be ripped out from under me. Very very sad today. Many people function their entire lives in that top square. But when you understand paid in full and the true nature of the gospel and what Jesus said during his final words on the cross, you need to get into that bottom square, which is not the world of religion. It's the world of salvation by grace. A little bit of a diversion from our text, but I can't help but bringing it up because Jacob is saying to Laban, I've paid everything. I paid two bridal prices. It's time for me to go back. Now, Laban doesn't like this, and he gives a counteroffer because he wants Jacob to stick around, stick around in Haran. 
Why is that? Because Laban recognizes something. Notice verse 27. But Laban said to him, that's Jacob, Now if it pleases with you, stay with me. I have divined, notice that word, that the Lord has blessed me on your account. What does it mean, divined? It means Laban was a pagan idolater steeped in occultic witchcraft type practices. And that's very important to understand because as we're going to see in our passage, Laban has been blessed financially. And the Bible wants us to understand that Laban was not blessed because of Laban. Laban was a mess up in every sense of the word. He was blessed because of Jacob's presence, because of the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll explain in just a moment. But even Laban himself recognized Jacob, as long as you're here, I'm being blessed. Now, Laban says, I didn't get that information from God. I got it from divining occultism. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, the request Laban made was, if now I have found favor in your eyes, tarry or stay. He wanted Jacob to stay. The reason for this was, for I have divined that Jehovah was, has blessed me for your sake. The Hebrew word for divine has the same root as the word serpent and literally means to divine through a serpent. Laban was a pagan who practiced such occult divination and through occult divination, Laban, the pagan, recognized that Jacob's God, whoever he might be, was blessing Laban because of Laban's relationship to Jacob, to to divine. Very important point to consider because we're living in a society now that is moving very aggressively into the occult. And what I mean by the occult is sources of knowledge and sources of power that people will try to tap into to give some sort of strength or clarity or to give some kind of guidance in their daily lives. The Bible would refer to these practices as the occult. People contact, for example, supposedly their deceased loved ones through channeling, through visions, through astral projection, board games, traffic, I believe, in the occult. The, the, the Ouija board, for example, traffics in the, the occult. When people consult their future through astrology and things of that nature, they're trafficking in the occult. Our society is now steeped in it. And I'm here to tell you as a child of God, you have no business playing around with that stuff. In the book of Acts chapter 19 and verse 19, Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus and countless people were saved. And these were people that were coming out of paganism, coming out of occultism. And notice what these people began to do as they were saved. It says in Acts 19, verse 19, And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50 
50,000 pieces of silver. How expensive is 50,000 pieces of silver? There's a wonderful note in the Ryrie Study Bible, and he says of that verse, magic spells written on scrolls. 50,000 pieces of silver. If the silver drachma is meant, the value would have been the equivalent of about 138 years pay for a rural worker. In other words, when these folks in Ephesus just took all of their witchcraft stuff, all of their spells, all of their scrolls, might I even say this, all of their iPads, iPhones, uh, video games, you got to really look very carefully at what you're watching and spending your time on and all of these media type things that we have today. There are express games that people begin to play that have an occultic background. So they took all of this stuff. They, they, they took their, oh, dare I say this, the Harry Potter series. D- dare I say this, they took the, the board game Dungeons and Dragons, which, by the way, as a youth pre-Christian, I spent, I'm embarrassed to say, an abnormally large amount of time with. In hindsight, I shouldn't have spent any time with it. But they took all of that stuff and they burned it to the point where what they burned and destroyed would have cost 138 years of work to accumulate. That shows you the attitude that the Christian should have towards occultic practices. Have nothing to do with these things. Why? Because there are two sources of power in the world. There's God's power, but these other sources give power too. I'm not going to contest the fact that they don't. They can give you a certain amount of insight and understanding and guidance, but you have to ask yourself not so much, does this thing that I'm involved in have power, but what is the source of the power? Because power in this world can come through one of two sources. God's power, the ultimate power. And Satan, although he doesn't have as much power as God, certainly has a lot of power. And he can give people a feeling of power. But you see, with Satan, there's always a payday. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come, Jesus speaking, that they may have life and have it abundantly. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but the opposite is true. John 10, verse 10, Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. And he would like nothing better to get you to think that moving in the occult, traffic in the in the occult is doing something powerful in your life, which it may be. But at the same time, it's putting you into bondage. There is a, a leash, there, there is a chain that is now going over you that you probably don't even recognize. And payday someday. And Satan is using the occult today to deceive massive amounts of people. Laban was one of those people. And I would challenge all of us to think very carefully about our lives and to respond the way the new Christians at Ephesus did. They, they took it. They didn't just walk away from it. They, they had a great big church bonfire. 
Maybe they roasted marshmallows. I don't know exactly what they did. But they clearly took things that were valuable from a human standpoint and they burned it because they recognized that they belong to Jesus now. And they're not to have Satan any longer as a roommate. You'll notice what um, it says there in verse 27. But Laban said to him, if, if now it pleases you, stay with me, for I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. Well, of course that's true. Because that's what God said would happen in Genesis 12, verse 3. In the Abrahamic covenant, as given to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, and now passed on to Jacob, God specifically said, through you, Israel, this new nation that is developing, I will bless the world through you. And in fact, it's there, he says, whoever curses you, I will curse, and the one who blesses you, I will bless, because at the end of the day, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Laban figured it out. I'm succeeding financially because of the presence of Jacob. Now, he got it from the wrong source, a source of divination. But the ultimate source of it is Genesis 12, verse 3, the Abrahamic covenant. Laban recognized what a lot of the patriarchs had trouble recognizing. The power associated with the Abrahamic covenant. It's interesting how pagans have a tendency to figure out things that the patriarchs are slow to learn. When you look at this promise concerning Israel, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. It's pretty simple here. What side of that ledger do you want to be on? As for me and my house, we choose to be on the blessing side. That's why we speak here kindly about the Jewish people. We take a moment or two to express gratitude for the 75th birthday of Israel. Why? Because A, it's the right thing to do. And B, God promises a blessing. You don't have to agree with every political decision the nation of Israel makes. That's not what God is saying here. God himself didn't agree with everything Israel did. Just read the Old Testament and you'll see examples of that all the way through. But generally speaking, we look at the Jewish people as a blessed group. God has decided to bless the world through the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We want to acknowledge that to be on the right side of God. And I'm here to tell you folks that a lot of churches are on the wrong side of this. They have bought into something called replacement theology where they think that Israel has been completely and totally cut out of God's plans. All of Israel's blessings have been transferred to the church, they say, the new Israel. Replacement theology. Many of them, very, very sadly, would not say a single word today about the 71st birthday of Israel. In fact, they would look at Israel in the Middle East as just a fluke of some sort. It has nothing to do with prophecy. 
nothing to do with the outworking of God's purposes. And many, many churches, and I could give you the names of the biggest denominations within Christendom that are doing this, they get involved, very sadly, in something called the BDS movement, which stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. Boycotting who? Boycotting Israel. Because they say Israel is an apartheid state. And they're trying to basically create in the minds of people an idea that Israel is just like South Africa, an apartheid state. I'm here to tell you folks that Israel is not an apartheid state. And the reason it's true that it's not an apartheid state is the non Israeli Arab population within Israel has grown since 1948, not shrunk. And many of those folks have found themselves at the highest levels of government within the nation of Israel, the Knesset or the Supreme Court. How could that happen in a genocidal, racially discriminatory state that's occupying supposedly someone else's land? No, we're not going to go that direction here at Sugarland Bible Church. We're in the bless, we're in the business of acknowledging Israel, not a perfect nation, but as the outworking of the hand of God, because God says at the end of the day, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And by the way, I don't see a statute of limitations here. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. That's only good until the New Testament starts, people think doesn't say that. It's an immutable law that God has established all the way back with the Abrahamic promises and the Abrahamic covenant. And isn't it interesting that Laban, through occultic sources, comes to the right conclusion here. So what happens is... After Laban makes this recognition, he then makes a financial offer to Jacob to keep him there in Haran. Verse 28, he continued, Laban speaking, name me your wages and I will give it to you. Of course, the Bible says the worker is worthy of his wages, right? Luke chapter 10, verse 7, name your wage so you can stay. And you're tempted to read that and say, wow, isn't Laban just a great guy? No, this guy's a deceiver from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Because when you look at Genesis 31, verse 7, the next chapter to the right, it says, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. So it seems like Jacob is getting some great deal here. He's not getting any deal. In fact, he's getting the short end of the stick. By the time we get to verse 36, you're going to wonder, well, what? how is Jacob going to get his way out of this one? He's been treated so unfairly. Well, that sets the table for God to work. God will work in an environment where his people are being deceived, cheated, ripped off, injustice is being committed against them. So if injustice is being committed against you, praise the Lord. Because now there's an opportunity for God to do something in your life by way of a rescue operation where he alone gets the credit and he alone gets the glory. That's what he is setting you up for in the midst of your injustice. 
You continue on and you come to verses 28 and 29 where now we have a description of Jacob's summary. Here's what's happened over the last 14 years in Jacob's mind. Look at verse 29. But he said, you yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. I, I was deceived into marrying someone I didn't want to marry. I worked seven years for that. Now I'm, I worked an additional seven years to marry the woman that I wanted to marry. You know, you've treated me unfairly, Laban. And the whole time you treated me unfairly, I've been faithful to you. Now, there's the calling of God right there. Being faithful to God in the midst of unfair treatment. Show me a Christian that is faithful to God in the midst of unfair treatment, and I will show you a Christian that is being directed by the Holy Spirit himself. Luke chapter 16 and verse 10, it says, He who is faithful in a very little thing, is also faithful in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Lord, I want to get promoted. Lord, I want to get ahead. Well, here's how you do it. You're faithful with what God has put right in front of you. You're faithful to that calling. You're faithful to that task. Even though the people over you may be treating you in a completely unfavorable way. Humanity may not take note of it, but God takes note of it. And that's the type of person that he promotes. And that's the type of person that he sustains. Jacob now expresses the blessing that has come to Laban through the presence of Jacob. Verse 30, for you had little before I came and it has increased to a multitude And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. Increased here means to break forth. Prosperity in Laban's life that has exploded. It has broken forth. And you'll notice the switch in pronouns from you to I. You didn't do this, Laban. My presence did it. Because of my connection to the Abrahamic covenant. Laban, certainly you couldn't have brought this prosperity and favor from God because you're the one involved in occultism. You're the one involved in these divining practices. The whole reason you have been blessed financially is because of the Abrahamic covenant and God says, I will bless those who bless you. Again, that's Genesis chapter 12. And verse 3. At this point, Jacob expresses a desire. Second part of verse 30. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? I'm not interested anymore in as much Laban as your prosperity. I'm interested in my own prosperity. Now, why is Jacob interested in his own prosperity, in his own financial security? Well, he's got a big family now. He's got two wives. He's got 11 sons. He's got one daughter. I need to make some sort of financial provision, some sort of financial security for them. You know, I came here as a single man into Haran. And now look at me. I've got two wives, 
two maidservants, 11 sons, and one daughter. And so Jacob's request here, I don't think is selfish. It's not self-centered. He's just saying, I've got a family to support. I've got a, a big, big family to take care of. It's kind of like what my dad used to tell me and my brother. He goes, look, um, you can either eat or go to college, but I don't think I can afford both. So we chose to eat. And then God provided for college. Amen. So Laban here asks a question. You go down to verse 31 and he says, so he said, what shall I give you? What do you want? Kind of a repetition of verse 28. Name your wages. And so now Jacob gives a request. First, he denies initial payment. Verse 31, so he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall give me nothing. You shall not give me anything. I would think at this point, after 14 years of service, Jacob could have insisted on a hiring bonus, shall we say, a little bit of money up front. He certainly deserved it. He was the source of the prosperity in Laban's household. Even Laban has recognized that. He could have demanded wages up front, but he doesn't. And this is the beginning of Jacob getting the short end of the stick here. To the point where his circumstances look so bleak that God has to do something, which is right where God wanted Jacob to begin with. So Jacob's request involves the offspring of the off-colored or spotted animals in Laban's flock. End of verse 31. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. So what is that one thing? Uh, verse uh, 32, let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lamb and the spotted and the speckled among the goats and such will be my wages. He mentions here three categories, speckled or spotted sheep, black or off-colored amongst the lambs, and speckled and spotted goats, and all Jacob wants is the offspring of those off-colored animals. Those will be my wages. Charles Ryrie in the Ryrie Study Bible says Jacob agreed to take care of Laban's flocks. In other words, this is what is going to supposedly keep Jacob in Haran, which is something that Laban wants so he can continue to be blessed. Jacob agreed to take care of Laban's flocks if he could keep as his wages the off-colored and spotted animals that would be born. I mean, this is very minimal, what Jacob is asking for. No money up front. This is all I want. Or obviously, from a human perspective, Jacob was in a position to demand much more. And beyond that, Jacob is honest. Jacob, it's kind of interesting, gets a really bad reputation as being a deceiver, which he was in earlier chapters. 
But here you see a man operating in complete and total integrity. Look at what he says there in verse 33. So my honesty, that's an important word, will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Jacob's honesty was testable by merely looking over his flock. If an animal is not spotted, speckled, or black, consider it stolen. There is something to be said for honesty in business dealings. Very, very sadly, you have, maybe they they had it when I was growing up in Southern California. I'm not sure if they have it today. Something called the Christian Yellow Pages. Businesses that were supposedly owned by Christians and you could really count on them to be upfront. You could really be, you could count on them to be honest. And we've all had these very sad experiences where a Christian and their method of operating a business is beneath the standards of the world. The Christian is the first to deliver sloppy, shoddy, lazy, incomplete products, goods, or services. They're the first to break a deadline. And I'm here to tell you folks that that should, that should not be so. Christians should be the ones that are far ahead of the world standards on being the most honest, the most upfront, and delivering the best goods or services. That's how Daniel was in the book of Daniel. Chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Daniel is very interesting. Daniel is one of the two characters in the Bible, other than Jesus, of course, where really nothing negative is said about him. The other character would be Joseph. Everyone else in the Scripture, other than Christ, um, their warts are very obvious to see as you read the Bible. Not so Daniel, and not so Joseph. And this is what it says of Daniel in Daniel 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, Then the commissioners and the satraps began, began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. Notice this. And no negligence or corruption was found in him. In other words, Daniel's enemies there in the Persian Empire began looking into his work product looking into his performance on the job. And while it is true that Daniel was a high-ranking government official in the empire of Persia, it is also true that he did his job with every I, uh, every I dotted, I should say, and every T crossed. It says of Daniel, he was not negligent, nor was he corrupt. Corruption, we know what that is. That's malfeasance, that's doing stuff that's completely wrong. But Daniel, not only was he not corrupt, but he was not negligent. Negligence is misfeasance. Negligence is carelessness. It's 
not necessarily scheming to rip somebody off, but we just go about our work in sort of a cavalier, sloppy, careless manner. Daniel was not like that. Neither was Jacob. We have in Christianity a great tradition called the Protestant work ethic, where Christians have a higher standard on the job than what is found in the world because a Christian understands that when they do their job, they're not doing their job for themselves. They're not doing their job to get ahead. They look at their job as part of their ministry. They look at their job as a way in which God is glorified by what they do. And if you go every single day to work with that kind of mindset, how how could your level of competence be lower than the rest of the world. I mean, you're working for Jesus. You're working for God. I mean, this is why God puts you in that position. The Protestant work ethic, it, it, it revolutionized the economies in the West. It paved the way, I would argue, for the Industrial Revolution. And isn't it interesting that as our own country is having all sorts of economic problems and and sputtering because of different reasons, perhaps part of the reason for it, in addition to bad government policies, which we are quick to point out, but maybe part of the problem is ourselves. We don't look at our work the way we should. The book of Colossians says we're to glorify God in everything, including our job. That was Daniel, that is Jacob, that's the Protestant work ethic, that's something that desperately needs to be brought back to the body of Christ and the American economy as a whole. Can I get an amen on that? So this uh, honesty leads Jacob to an agreement because Laban thinks he's getting the better side of this. He's not getting the better side of it because he's going against God, as we're going to see next week. But in his mind, Laban thinks he's getting ahead, and so he's quick to seal the deal here with Jacob. Look at verse 34. Laban said, good, let it be done according to your word. Words that Laban would not have spoken if he felt that somehow he was not getting ahead. Now watch how dishonest this man Laban is is you look at verse 35 which is Laban's dishonesty and Laban starts to remove things from the flock that could help Jacob that's right there in verse 35 so he that's Laban removed on that day the striped the spotted Male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it, and all the black ones among the sheep. In other words, Laban removed everything from the flock that would potentially favor Jacob's increase. So Jacob, in essence, is starting at zero in this agreement. Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it this way. In verses 35 and 36, Laban took some precautionary actions with verse 35 describing the selection. He removed that day first the 
He goats that were ring streaked, ring streaked and spotted. Second, all the she goats that were speckled and spotted. Third, everyone that had white in it. And fourth, all the black ones among the sheep. Therefore, what Laban did was very unfair. Although Jacob was generous, Laban did not respond with generosity. Laban removed everything that would favor Jacob's increase. When he took what he took aside were the very animals that Jacob was to start with and his wages were to be the offspring from them. But Laban set them aside. Now Jacob had to start with nothing. So Laban has deceived Jacob a second time. The Ryrie Study Bible says Laban, his true character, and acting in a manner not entirely foreign to the basic laws of hereditary, separated the off-colored animals so as to reduce further Jacob's chances of acquiring a large herd. However, those animals were not visibly spotted, had latent genes that would produce spotted offspring. More on that next week. Jacob is not requesting any money up front. He's requesting something very humble. He's requesting something very modest. And now Laban, through deceit, has just rigged the game. Laban thinks. So Jacob is going to get almost nothing. And Laban is going to get everything. Now we've got time. Now we've got room for God to act. You ever found yourself in this kind of situation where it seems like the game is rigged and no matter what you do, you can't get ahead because someone is coming against you in an unfair way? I'm here to tell you, folks, if that is your circumstances today, praise the Lord, because God sees it. And in God's timing and in God's providence, he does and he will act. But you see, all of this cheating was necessary for the growth of Jacob because now the deceiver, Jacob, has been deceived by Laban not one time, but two times. The first time in the marriage with Leah and the second time in what is happening here. What greater way for God to teach a deceiver not to be a deceiver than for the deceiver to be deceived himself by someone that deceives better than him? Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, now the deceiver is deceived. Although the motivations differ from good to bad, the divine retribution is in four ways. Now, this has to do with Jacob's first marriage. First, Isaac's blindness equals the darkness of Jacob's wedding night. And neither could see as a result. Second, this Jacob is deceived by being presented the older for the younger. The reversal of Isaac's presentation of Jacob for Esau. Third, Isaac thought Jacob was Esau, and Jacob thought that Leah was Rachel. Fourth, Jacob pretended to be his older brother, while Leah pretended to be her younger sister. See what's happened here? 
In every area where Jacob pulled off a deception, which he did back in chapter, what was it, 28, I think it was. About 15 years ago, we were there studying it. And isn't it interesting that God allowed the deceiver to be deceived in the exact same way that the deceiver originally pulled off the deception? I'm here to tell you, folks, that God does do these kinds of things in the lives of people. He will let us, after we've ripped someone else off, perhaps, or lied to someone, or vented against someone inappropriately, or gossiped against someone, or slandered someone, God will take those identical circumstances that we put someone else through, and He says, now I'm going to put you through it. And unless I put you through it, you're not going to see how much it hurts. And once you see how much it hurts, and you're going to have to learn this lesson, you're finally going to say to yourself, you know, maybe I shouldn't do that to somebody else. Perhaps some of the trials that you're in now is a reflection of that truth, is a reflection of that reality. I'm upset about injustice. Well, what injustices have you perpetrated against someone else? You have to learn that it hurts. You have to learn that the the door swings both directions. The, the, the sword is double-edged. And there have been many times in my life where I have done things to people. I'm not proud of saying this at all. And then the Lord allows me to experience what I inflicted on somebody else. And the Lord quietly says to me, how do you like that? Does that feel good? No, Lord, it doesn't feel good. And I I repent. I, I should not have done what I did to someone else. I should have said what I said to someone else because now I know it hurts. What does the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 13 say? Whom the Lord loves, the Lord what? Chastens. We're not dealing here with a loss of salvation. We're dealing with the tools that God uses to bring us to the next level of maturity. After all, the book of Galatians clearly says, Galatians 6, verses 7 and following, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from it eternal life. The deceiver here, Jacob, is now deceived twice. Jacob must have had a hard time learning his lesson because the Lord puts him through the ringer, not once, but twice. And I think what you can see in Jacob is a development of character. Because through all of this injustice, he's, 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 he's acting exactly the right way. He's growing. Which is God's agenda for all of us, isn't it? I mean, um, I think, I think God, I'm not the man I used to be. But I'm certainly not always the man I should be. Because God has got me on the process of growth. I have no corner on God. God's got you on the same track. Let's grow up and press into Christ's likeness. You go down to the second part of verse 35, and Laban, just to seal the deal, separates the two. 
And it says there in verse 35, second part of the verse, and gave them, that's the everything Laban emptied from the flock, gave them into the care of his sons. What sons? When Jacob arrived in Haran, there were only two daughters mentioned. Now we've got these sons. Well, there's been 14 years. A lot can happen in 14 years. I mean, Jacob now has two wives, two maidservants, 11 sons, and a daughter. I mean, a lot can happen in 14 years. Laban had, apparently, sons as well. It's interesting that uh, Jacob is not cheating Laban, but it's the other way around. So the spotted go to the sons. Jacob is starting with nothing. How totally unfair, but praise the Lord. Now we've got room for God to do something. There's room for God to act. You have uh, the separation described there, verse 36, and he put a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob. No opportunity for crossbreeding. Laban made it as difficult as possible for Jacob to succeed in this deal. But now there's room for God to move his hand. It's, uh, you know, my wife was a lifeguard at one time in her life. And she's told me many times that when someone is drowning and they know they're drowning and they're flailing away, you know, you don't swim out there and rescue them at that point because they, in desperation and fear, as you know, will pull you down with them. That's what fearful people do. So a lifeguard will wait till the person stops struggling. Till their, their energy is gone, their energy is depleted. And once you come to the end of your human resources, your human flesh, your human energy, now you're in a position to be rescued. That's what God does in our lives all of the time. He, he waits for us to stop flailing away and struggling. He, he waits for us to stop screaming and yelling because, first of all, um, our throat hurts. We've been screaming and yelling so much. I can't scream and yell anymore. I don't have any more energy anymore. And you just sit quietly and God says, all right, now that you're finished trying to deliver yourself in futility, now watch my hand move. And so many, many times in my life, I've been brought to the total end of myself. And if you're being brought to the end of yourself through this process of growth and discipline that I'm speaking of here, praise the Lord. Now it's time for God to move. Second part of verse 36. Now look at Jacob through all of this. He's not bitter. He's not enraged. Even though he's being given the short end of the stick, he's not even being given the short end of the stick. He's given nothing. Not even a short end of a stick, for crying out loud. He just does what what God had him to do. He's faithful where God put him. And, end of verse 36, And Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Jacob looked out for Laban's interests, even though Laban was in the obvious process of ripping off and cheating Jacob. I'm reminded of uh, 1 Peter 2. 
verses 21 through 23. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered, leaving for you an example, an example, can you all say that with me? An example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. I mean, Jesus didn't sit there hanging on the cross, screaming, I'm going to get you all when I come back the second time. He said, forgive them, Father, what? They, they know not what they do. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Lord, I'm being treated very unfairly here. But he doesn't revile in return. He just keeps entrusting his circumstances to God. And that was done for our example. Which means when I'm treated unfairly, I'm not to turn around and retaliate through human power. I'm just to keep trusting over and over again my circumstances to God. And that's what Jacob's doing there at the end of verse 36. Well, when is God going to move his hand? Verse 37 he does through verse 43, which we'll be taking a look at um, next time. But maybe today you're here or listening online, watching online, and you've just come to the end of yourself. I mean, you have tried what the world of religion says you ought to do to be made right with God, and you're just tired. If you come to the end of yourself, you're in a wonderful position because now there's room for God to move. You're in the perfect position to be willing to stop struggling and to receive the grace of God. And the way that you receive the grace of God is you trust in not your own good works for justification, but in the good work that Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago. If you're a Christian struggling, I would encourage you with the message we gave today to entrust your circumstances to God. If you're unsaved and you're struggling, we would encourage you to stop struggling and to receive the free gift Jesus has for you. Salvation was never designed to be attained through human works. So what's there to struggle over? Just relax. Receive it as a free gift and enter into a relationship with the God that made you and the God that redeemed you by trusting in what Jesus did. That's something you can do right now in the quietness of your own thoughts and heart and mind as the Holy Spirit places you under conviction. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to receive, join a church to receive, give money to receive. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Spirit convicts you of your totally hopeless condition. And once you come under that conviction and you understand the resolution to the problem, which is the gospel, you just trust in that 
And just like that, you're made right with God. You can receive Christ even now as I'm speaking. Those in the building could receive Christ simply by trusting in what He has done. Those listening online, watching online, even watching or listening to archives after the fact, can now respond to that convicting ministry of the Spirit by trusting in the provision of the Savior. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Lord, we're grateful for this historical account and how it speaks gospel truths and grace truths that we so desperately need to hear in this day and age. Help us to walk these things out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.